The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is God's word. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you speak, we should listen. It's our greatest joy to hear your voice as we did in the garden. And our relationship to you defines us. And we need to know your heart and your will and your ways. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Because, Father, when you rule and reign, things are the way they're supposed to be. You rule in righteousness and justice, and the earth is yours and everything in it. We flourish when we live in accord with your emerging kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread, because in our journey here on earth, we have so many needs. Broken relationships leave us lonely and hurting. We need comfort and care. We are so insufficient in and of ourselves. We need you to fill our emptiness. We worry about the basics of life. Comfort us in the knowledge that you love us more than the birds that you always feed and provide shelter for and the flowers of the field that are not only clothed but dressed in splendor. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors because we have rebelled against your words, your will, and your way. We are so angry when we aren't listened to or considered by others while we continue to turn our ears away from you. Forgive us, Lord, and teach us to forgive others who are truly so similar to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because our greatest temptation is to not trust that you are trustworthy and your word is good. Help us with this. Lead us to see and trust in your goodness. Overwhelm evil with good and help our hearts to see that it's true. For to you is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. Um, As I mentioned, we're headed into a series about the foundations of our faith, and 
you heard uh, part of this psalm that was read uh, as part of our, our text opening up, Psalm 19. And I just want to kind of speak out over us the last words of that psalm that were not read by joy, which are, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So today we, uh, we're considering the Bible. Uh, it's an interesting thing to preach a sermon uh, from the Bible about the Bible on Super Bowl Sunday. This, is, uh, this has been an interesting thing to think about doing. Um, it's actually kind of a complicated thing to do. There's a lot of background, and I just want to admit that I will in no way uh, give this enough treatment. Um, this, is a, this is intended, I hope that you will be a little more interested in, in the Bible, in the scriptures of the Christian tradition uh, after today, and that you, if you already are interested, will just value it more. That's my hope, and that you will go out and dig uh, deeper yourselves. So the, the Bible, there's no Christianity without it. Um, there is so much diversity of thought concerning it. Uh, I've heard people say or view it, even within Christian circles, as something that gets in the way. Uh, I heard a podcast recently where somebody said, but this scripture says this thing, and it was kind of contradicting what the person was saying in the podcast, and they just said, well, then I think that Bible writer was wrong. And they had this weird little moment of going, ugh, what do we do with that? Um, and then others might say, it's all I will listen to. And the trouble is people have a hard time interpreting what the words mean. And so one person will say, I'm sure the Bible means this. And the others will say, I'm sure it means this. And then what do you do? Uh, what do you do about that? It's, it's a very... Uh, difficult thing to wrap our minds around, yet it's absolutely crucial to the faith. I, I'm, I kid you not, my thesis today is there's no Christianity without the Bible. Um, and so it's, it's critical. Um, and here we are in 2022 looking at this ancient, ancient text and trying to interpret it and look through the lens of our modern eyes and say, what does this mean? Uh, yet it's a critical task. Um, some ancient churches actually restricted access of, of the Bible to only scholars to guard the beliefs within it because they were afraid that people would mess that up. And if they read it themselves, they wouldn't understand it and they would get it wrong. And then in the Reformation, uh, Christians saw that the, the church higher-ups were kind of twisting the meaning of the Bible and they wanted to break open access to everybody to hold people in high places accountable to the Bible. Um, the Bible is ancient and about transcendent truth, but every stage of it has been carried about by human work and innovation. And that is a, a hard thing sometimes to wrap our minds around. Um, when I read to you at the beginning about Moses writing things down, this period where Moses is writing is the first time in history this complex type of thought could have been captured in language. Alphabets had just been finished and developed, you literally could not have formulated the first five books of the Bible much earlier than this. It wouldn't have been humanly possible. So as soon as we people developed language past just images on walls and hieroglyphics into alphabets, we began to read and write the scriptures. It, it really has always been said to have come from God, yet our work and innovation has been a huge part of it being shared. We all today, that Reformation era, 
they all started to get the scriptures in their hands because of the invention of the printing press. Before that, you had to depend on scholars because not everybody could have access. And now I can pull out my little mini supercomputer and open up my Bible app and, and I can go to study tools. And if I don't like those, I can go online and go to Blue Letter Bible and dig into a, a little bit of a Greek text to look into what some scholars would say that certain words mean. That, that's an incredible ability and innovation that we have in our day. Now, so tonight, I will not answer all of your questions, nor, like I said, will I give this topic all the time it deserves, but I really, I want to say in the complexity of all that, I want to push us into an appreciation of the Bible. So first, I want to tell you a little bit about this series, too. Um, I recognize we all have, have come up in different traditions, or some of us didn't come up in a, in a Christian tradition at all. Um, we're following for this series an ancient confession of faith. That's how we kind of structured it. And I didn't grow up with those. I didn't grow up in a tradition with those. But we're following one called the Belgic Confession. And it was formulated around the time of the Reformation. Um, and it's, uh, it's just because it kind of belongs to our family of churches. The interesting thing is it was made in secret um, to some degree because these old confessions were ways that the church, the, the Christian church, were trying to defend themselves against kings that wanted to take their lives to say, look, what we believe is reasonable, so spare us. And actually, the author of the Belgic Confession was found guilty of heresy um, for writing out the, the Christian faith and was hung by the Spanish Inquisition, interestingly enough. So to put in this work, you think about how seriously would you take theology if you were fighting for your life to show that it was true? Well, that's what he was doing, and that's what his predecessors were doing. Um, so this work is, uh, is, it's not the Bible, but it, it's a great organizational structure, and I'm just kind of going to follow its lead, except for this week. I'm breaking from it for one week because a little while later, some other folks um, were commissioned by the, the nation of England to formulate a confession, so they weren't hiding, and they spent 10 years studying theology and trying to put things in order 10 years. And, uh, and they decided one of the things in that 10 years was that it's really important to start with the Bible itself. Because if you don't have the Bible and the specific facts that the Bible states, all your other assumptions, they're actually being drawn from the Bible, but you're not stating your starting point. So they said, as you, 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 to be intellectually honest, you have to begin with the Bible. So that's, uh, I'm taking cues from that. So anyway, I know not all of us uh, are probably creeds and confessions people, but this is something you might want to value. This is, think about, you know, like I said, people who had to fight for their lives to formulate good theology or who spent 10 years, there's probably some work they did that's uh, really worth considering. But my big idea today is to show you uh, four things. The priority of Scripture in the Christian life, the diversity within Scripture and kind of what that brings to the church, the unity of Scripture and how just dependable it really is, and the gifts of Scripture um, that we can really take and use. So the priority of Scripture, why start with the Bible? Um, here's a really specific statement, but think about this. Without specific verbal revelations of God, we cannot know what we need to know 
to truly love God, obey God, or be saved by grace. Um, the scripture, as, as we read today, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? You can, that, that's saying you can look up into the firmament, you can see the, the amazing amount of stars. Now you can look through telescopes and see galaxy after galaxy, and you can, you can see that and say, there might be something bigger than me. There might be something greater than me, but you can't know anything specific. You can't know what does that being consider to be love? What does that being consider to be you know, obedience? What does that being do to intervene into the chaos of our lives? You can't learn any of that from looking at the heavens or nature. So you need specific revelations. Revelations means like the curtain is pulled back and you get to see information. You need revelations from God in words. Because as crazy as it is, try to imagine thinking without words. Try. You're doing it. I know you are. There's words in there. You don't have any other way to do it. We, we communicate, we think using language, which is wild. We need God to place his thoughts into our language for us to, to know what we need to know about God and have a right relationship with God and others. And that is why scripture is the primary foundation upon which we build our faith. That is to say that God reveals who he is, what he thinks, and what he wants us to know in language and preserves it. And since God has always existed and has always been thinking, this is like mind-blowing stuff. The things that God reveals are not new coming after God, but they have always existed in his own mind, and he reveals them to us little, tiny, minuscule human beings on planet Earth. That is a crazy This is a very important reason behind a unique element in the Bible. If you look at a lot of the other ancient religious myths, um, you'll see a a theme in how the world comes to be. There's usually like a conflict. There's almost always like a war or or a cosmic conflict. In the Bible, God is like an artist, like a poet, in fact. Genesis 1 is actually a highly poetic and almost like a song that the creation comes through in a creative mode of speech. And that's absolutely unique. There's no other other philosophy that begins with a creative, speaking, relational God. Some of the biggest questions in philosophy are like, where does knowledge come from? Where does knowledge come from? If If we grow out of meaningless causes, then what does it mean And the best answer you can come up with is who knows or nothing. And really, truly consistent philosophers will say that. But if there is a God who creatively speaks things into existence, then we know where knowledge comes from. Or what what it means. We can know what it means. Science, for, for example, has a limited ability to answer those kind of questions. Science is a gift. It tells us, what things are made of. It shows us how to measure things, compare things, how things work, but it cannot tell us why they work. 
why they exist or what they mean. We creatures can't infer up beyond ourselves. The Bible says it this way, the pot cannot look at the potter and say, you know, why did you make me like this? Isn't that a funny thing to think about? Have you ever seen a pottery class or a pottery wheel? And the potter is there, they're shaping things with their hand, and they're like, I want this, you know, coffee mug to have a handle after they take it off, right? And the coffee mug doesn't go, hey, this is dumb. No, that's not how it, how it works, right? The, the created thing doesn't look up at the creator and say, you don't know what you're doing. Though that's what we do all the time, right? But if we could have the words of the creator telling us what we're for, like the potter goes, you're for coffee and we don't want to drop you. And it goes, oh, okay. That's, that's what's happening here is the created thing, looking to the creator and getting information. What was I made for? And why am I this way? And this is why people cannot help themselves. This is why people everywhere are looking to some kind of belief system. And you might say, I know a lot of people who aren't religious. I know a lot of people that don't have belief systems. I'm really having a hard time finding any, truthfully, because even if you start with yourself and say, I determine what is right and true and good, you are creating a belief system. Even if you start with something like naturalism, you are creating a belief system. It's you're. It, try to build a philosophy off of nothing. You can't. You come in with all kinds of beliefs and assumptions. We all do. We're always creating systems to try to understand things so that we can live in a rational way. And even those who, who I've read who've said, that's out, that's out of line, you can't do it, and then they're still doing you know, works of philanthropy or they're trying to help the poor, they'll say, look, you just have to be irrational to be a good person. But the Bible's claim is that there is a God. There is knowledge, there is meaning, there is purpose. And not only that, that we have access to what it is because God speaks. Because creation is a product of intelligent speech. And we people, his image bearers then, have been created for relationship. Which is why the Bible shows God speaking to humanity and shows humanity, people like husband and wife, speaking to each other and responsible to each other. And why God commissioned them to name and create and cultivate and love, which requires words and knowledge and relationship. And what the Bible is proclaiming is that we did not create God, we did not discover or deduce God from what we observed, but that God created us and revealed himself to us in specific enough ways that we could live accordingly. And that belief can anchor things like meaning, justice, love, and morality. Those things can actually be understood. And you can't know those things about God without God revealing it, which is why the first foundation of our faith must be God's revealing of himself. And so we should value the Bible. Now, that doesn't clear up everything, I know. There's, there's so many other questions. Well, what about all the other books out there? And I, I know. But just roll with me on this for a second, that it's key to the foundation of religion that we hear from God about who he is. And then think about this. Logically, if, 
if there is a God who's so rational as to create things and to be the source of something like love or hope or all the beautiful things, wouldn't it follow that that God would reveal to his creation who he is? Um, think about, some of us are parents, we've all had parents, um, even the worst of parents, even the, the most imperfect parents know that if you have a child, you bring somebody into the world, you have some responsibility to interpret the world for them, to help them know what it is, what it means, how to operate. Even very broken, imperfect parents know to do this. If we are going to have any, if we're going to take a leap and say maybe there's a God, it's, it's only logical to say that and that God would probably reveal himself unless he was cold and disconnected. So for Christians, what could that do to our view of the Bible? I think this is one of the things I really want us to think about. Is the Bible a task that we must check off you know, fairly regularly in order to make God happy with us, right? I think that's how a lot of us view it. Like, you know, if I bring up the Bible in conversation, and I sense this in myself, the first thing you hear is like people go, I know I should read it more. I know I should, right? Is the Bible a tool to be a better person? Or on the flip side, is it like a hammer to hit others with when they aren't being good? To be like, look, Bible says, Or is the Bible just a burden that sits on our shelf? And even if we don't care, it just kind of yells at us. Every time we see that gold gilded spine, it just says, you're not enough. You're not trying. Read me. Don't you care? No, it's none of that. It is none of that. If we can see that this is God revealing himself, his thoughts, his ways, his goodness, his feelings, his love, his truths to us, then it becomes something like the greatest memoir ever written. Like imagine if you were to discover that some, one of your great-great-grandparents wrote their own memoir and they were involved in some like incredible world events. You know, would you look at that and be like, oh. I should get through that. Really one of these. I don't think so. I think you might be like, what's in there? <laughs> what well, I want to know what's in there, right? If we can see that this is God's revelation, we might look at it and go, there could be wisdom in there. Like think about the podcast that you listen to. You're like, I don't know how to save money, right? Here's a podcast about saving money. Or I don't know how to be trendy. Here's one about being trendy. And you're, what are you thinking? You're like, I want to know what's in there. I think that the people in there know what I need to know. I want to know what's in there. If God is revealing himself to us, when we see that Bible on the shelf, that's how we should feel. Like, what's in there? What could I find out? What could I know about? Um, as people who have desires, like desires within our hearts, I mean, think about all, I, can't, I would imagine that all of you at some point this week had some kind of relational desire. You wanted to be seen or known or heard or understood at some point this week. And if the God who created you has 
revealed who he is, his heart, and has things to say to you, that's where you'd find it, is in there. This is a revelation of the things we were made to see and know. If you're a, if you're a scientist or engineer, this is where meaning can be fused with mechanics. If you're an artist, this is where you encounter the one that imagined and spoke into existence the idea of a sunset or a stegosaurus or a ponderosa pine tree. Wouldn't it be cool to understand and more? For all of us who long to be deeply known, we encounter the one our souls were made to know and love. If you care about law and government, this is where we meet the one who is just and strong, but also defends the weak while he speaks the truth. Wouldn't it be great to understand how that works? For those in medicine and psychology, you meet the great physician who created the body and the soul and the mind. For the one who loves history, you're going to find tons of detail. You will even find lists of specific tribes. You can nerd out on this for hours. We get to see way more God in the Bible than anywhere else. So the Bible is a priority and a privilege because it's where God reveals himself in language, spoken words passed down, which is why the book of Hebrews, which Joy read a section of, says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke, which is important. And if God is the sovereign, the king of the universe, who is as involved in our lives and in world events as the Bible says he is, think about it. He can handle and manage this process. I think this is one of the things that for me is hard. I think, but this book has been passed down, right? So many people through so many hands. And and how, how how does that work? If God is the sovereign that he says he is, he can handle this process. And I'll get, I'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. But here's an interesting thing. We've, had, we've never had so much of this ancient text available to study as we do now. We've never had the amazing tools to preserve it that we have now. So it's the further humanity has, has gotten from the writing of things, the more tools we have to dig in. And I think that helps. So the Bible is a priority, and it comes to us in incredible diversity. And this is an interesting thing. I've alluded to this a bit, but it's really quite encouraging. Um, and this, this is why I, I just want to give you permission right now that you don't have to read this thing cover to cover. Um, when you see it, um, like think of it, it's, it's like a collection of books. It's not a cover to cover thing. It looks like a really thick novel, right? You look at it and you go, that's long. And the truth is, it actually was never meant to be read straight through. It's, it's a collection of books. You can read it in, in many different orders. It doesn't need to be taken in, in one uh, big swallow. You can read it that way, um, but, but you don't have to. It's a collection of the writings of people that are written about the same God because the Spirit was carrying them along. Now, I want to explain that for a second. A collection. These were written in different times and different audiences. Um, there, there are so many different things going on. As you read the Bible, you have stuff from very ancient 
text. You have, you have stories that Moses is capturing that were thousands of years old. And then you have things that were written to kind of ancient Israel under times like the Babylonian captivity. And then you have books that were written telling the story about Jesus to very specific audiences in, in the Greek-speaking world. You have a diversity of things going on in the Bible. Um, they are of people, and that is that they, they really have the creative work of people in their voices and styles. Everyone is written different. Every one of the Gospels is written different. Some of them you can read. I, I heard one scholar who just said, the, the cool thing about the Gospels is like Mark is, Mark would be like reading a book written by me in English, where you'd go, that guy clearly never went to college, right? You'd go, he can write, sure, but wow, he needs an editor, right? And then you have the book of Luke, who is like, which is high Greek, like, whoa, this is the professor speaking. And you get those different angles and nuances in the writing. It really, it really includes the personality of the people. But it's about the same God. And they were collected together because God's people could see that the worship of this God was the same. The mission of this God was the same. And there was a deep consistency. And the spirit of God was at work in the midst of human history, putting it together. Um, Peter the disciple of Jesus, speaking about the entirety of the Bible. He was, he was talking about Jesus, but he was thinking about the Old Testament when he said, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. How does that work? Because we're used to thinking, especially in kind of a post-enlightenment, individualistic, uh, secular time, you, you might think to yourself, nobody carries me along. When I write something, it's me, right? When I say something, it's only me. It could only be me. But there are cultures now, and there have been cultures in history who don't think that way, who see that there could be you know, deeper metaphysical possibilities happening, and the Scripture is saying something of both. And it's pretty incredible. Now, I want you to try this on for size. For those of you who have who, who can kind of assume some Christianity here, or even if you can't, give it a shot. Think about this situation really quick. Christianity is based on this biblical history, and one key piece is that Jesus came into the world, was born supernaturally. He was raised. He was a child. He grew up. Some people followed him. Other people rejected him. Uh, one man named Judas betrayed him. The ruling council of Israel condemned him. The Roman Empire executed him. And then his followers say that he rose from the dead, and this was God's plan. Now listen to Peter, who was one of his disciples. He said this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. By the way, Peter is preaching this to people who were all around at this time. Thousands of people gathered. Um, and this is, this is from Acts 2. But he says, This man um, did wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Did you notice that in the, 
in the middle of that crazy thing that Peter said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. And you crucified him through lawless men. What in the world? God's plan could happen through people being disobedient and lawless? How is that possible? That's, that's an incredible, by the way, declaration of this possibility that humans could be utterly responsible for their choices, but there could still be a God that is in charge of all things. This scripture is saying that that could be true. And that, that's something that we as a humanity have, have been trying to figure out our entire lives. Is there a God who's actually in control? Can I trust him? But then what about, what about people's responsibility? But now, think about this. If for Christians, for those of you in here, few believers would say, you know, I think Jesus' death on the cross was an accident on God's part. I, I think that God, when Jesus died on the cross, went, ooh, you know what I could do? I could help people through that. What? I'm going to raise him from the dead. Oh, it worked. It worked. You know, they believe it. They believe it. No, no Christian would say that. We'd say, yeah, God, was, God had a plan. He was involved in that moment. I see that. Okay, if God could have a plan, but it still wasn't right for people to kill him, it was still wrong, you know, that, that people, fallible people, carried out the possibility of God's will, if that's possible in the life and death of Jesus, the same is possible in the preservation of the Bible that people who weren't perfect, who weren't God, could have written things down that God wanted to be written down and saved. That is just as possible as God having a plan in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? So just entertain the possibility. And consider, consider outside of that, in the diversity of Scripture, the beautiful tapestry that God weaves using the personalities of all of these specific people. Like I said, Genesis 1 is this, this beautiful song. It's like it's called exalted prose, Hebrew exalted prose, um, that is speaking of the creation of God's people in just, in just beautiful creative language. Then there's historical record. There's declarations of God's will by prophets who God calls. There's wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs that just has sound advice and wisdom. There's poetry there are gospels, which are biographies of Jesus that give good news. There are epistles, letters written to churches, written from pastors to people saying, here's how you should live in light of the work of Jesus. And at the very end, there's a grand apocalypse. And the word apocalypse means rev like revealing that says, look, imagine that the curtain of, of space and time were ripped back and you could see what's going on in heavenly places here is what's going on behind the scenes in eternity. That's what the book of Revelation is. And all of these books are written differently with different nuance and complexity. It's a really dynamic book. God is sharing with his people when they're on top of the world, when they're rebellious, when they're downtrodden, when they're repentant, when they're weary. There are no situations into which the revelations of the Bible cannot be applied. It's been behind the strongest movements towards science, healthcare, social and racial justice, just societies and governments. 
Did you know that our American government is patterned after Presbyterian like church practices? Did you know that? That the idea of like representatives being voted in by the body politic came from Bible study? It's behind some of the most consistent works of philosophy and movements toward better human rights, art, creation care, vocational faithfulness, and the list goes on and on because the Bible is coming from so many different diverse perspectives and speaking to so many different people in so many different situations. It's really very incredible. And with all that diversity, you'd expect God to be portrayed in a thousand different ways, but he's not. There's a, a surprising unity of Scripture. I want to show you just one of probably thousands of possible options here. This is Romans 15, 1 to 7. I want to show you just how it all gets tied in in this one particular section. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. Um, here he's explaining, if you've been around with us for the last five, six weeks, um, we've talked a lot about meat sacrifice to idols and how the Apostle Paul was instructing a church in Corinth. Well, here he's talking to the church in Rome about similar things, actually what meats they can eat and uh, if they can or cannot drink wine in the presence of others uh, seem to be two of the presenting issues. And Paul says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, doesn't, isn't that a beautiful idea? Isn't that one of those ideas that we look around at the world around us today and go, why can't we do this? <laughs> why can't we do things for our neighbor to build them up, right? And so Paul gives, here's his reason. Why should the people do this? Here's why. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written. And now Paul's going to quote, a psalm, Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. And then Paul says about Psalm 69, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So here, why do I show you this? Paul is doing some incredible scriptural work. He's teaching a deeply important and complex principle that a person who has been a receiver of grace, of God's grace, is able to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ and is therefore able to emulate Jesus and live their life for the sake of, the, of others instead of being selfish. That's a deep idea. And we need to learn it. And Paul teaches it, as I kind of showed you, by saying, Here's the principle, let us please our neighbor for their good and build them up. And his basis for that is not because it's the right thing to do or because you'll get you know, a reward or people will like you. It has because those 
Those reward systems have very little power. It's the right thing to do when it feels very costly to me. That We decide against that all the time, right? Constantly. Like, I'm running late to my doctor's appointment, right? The speed limit is 35. I have an appointment after my doctor's appointment. I can go 60 in this car. Like, yeah, it's the right thing to go 35. I'm not going to. That's not hard. That's very easy to do, right? But to lay something down that's going to be costly to us for the self-interest of others is a very difficult thing to do. So Paul says, you know, because that principle has very little power, he says, here is how you can do it because Christ did not please himself. And what these Christians knew was that they had been forgiven and served and died for by Jesus. They understood that on a very like relational and emotional level that Jesus had laid down everything, his glory in the heavens, and had come down, suffered on earth on their behalf, and they felt connected relationally to Jesus. So when Paul said that, they went, oh, that happened. That was done for me by God. So then when Paul says, now you go and do that, the motive is relationally thick. But then how does he prove that that's what Jesus was doing? How does he get into the head of Jesus, right, who's no longer there? Well, he points to Psalm 69 that says, where King David wrote, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. And David was talking about people who hated God and their hatred then got aimed at King David. And he was, it's a psalm that's very complex. Um, it's actually a psalm that has tons of like lament and, and statements of anger alongside with statements of hope. It's a very emotionally complex psalm. And he says, the people, God, that hated you, they hate me. And here Paul is looking at this psalm that has some other references that end up seeming to really truly come true in Jesus. And he's saying this ancient psalm where David felt that kind of connection to God, how much more did Jesus feel that connection to God when he bore the way that we feel about God upon himself? Because Jesus died because of the ways that we don't trust God. And so Paul is saying this psalm, this song of God's people that's talking about a God who allows reproach to fall on somebody else and then delivers them from the grave, it has a deeper meaning and significance in Jesus. So Paul tells these people, Jesus has served you this way. I can prove it because God has delivered his servant who bore reproach in the Old Testament. That same God was there with Jesus, and so he delivered his servant who bore your reproach now. And then that psalm, and actually Romans 15, go on to cite all kinds of other ancient Old Testament passages going all the way back to Abraham and showing the consistency of the character of God and how God had always planned to do this kind of thing. It's, it's an incredible thing. Now, here's what some people do. They'll, they'll, we'll look at the Bible and we'll, we'll just take a verse and we'll go, you know, the Bible says that, I, I read it, that's what it means. Paul, to get to make this conclusion, had to do a ton of work in understanding the heart of the God of the Old Testament. 
He had to understand the thinking of the God of the Old Testament. He had to understand the thinking of King David. He had to understand what that psalm was all about. He put a lot of thought into understanding the God of the Bible, and it made his understanding of Jesus very, very rich. I love, um, in the book of Acts, there's a moment, Mike actually brought it up when we were planning for this sermon, but Paul um, has come to a church in a town called Berea, and he's brought the message of Jesus. And it probably was, as, as this explanation of Romans 15 is probably very complex and has some of us going, wait a second, there's a lot going on there. That's how these people felt in Acts 17. And they heard this message of Jesus, and they, the Bible says they were very noble because they took the words and examined their Old Testament scriptures daily to make sure that they were consistent that the message of Jesus was consistent with the Old Testament. I'm proud and encouraged to be part of a, of a religion, of a belief system that says, look into it. Check it out. Make sure it's consistent. That's another reason to drive you to the Bible. If Jesus isn't consistent with the book of Genesis, then, oh well, then it's no good. But what if he is? What if the same God that created the world is also the one who gives the law in Exodus and speaks through the prophets and that Jesus comes in and as the book of Hebrews says, perfectly fulfills everything that the law was speaking of and then offers us his relationship with God as a son, as an heir, and we can live out of the reality that people like Paul and Peter are telling us that we could and we could have the hope of a new heavens and new earth like the book of Revelation says we have. What if that's true? Look into it. Be sure of it. Dig in to find it. So the Bible's a priority. It, it's very diverse. It speaks to all kinds of situations, but it's very unified, even like you can see in a text like Romans 15. Now just for, by way of review, I want to show you a few ways that this can be a gift to you. The true God does not leave you or me in the dark. As with any good earthly parent, as I mentioned before, but far greater than them, God doesn't just create and leave us to figure out why. There's a, there's a theory of creation that's like it's the watchmaker idea, that you find a watch in the, you know, out in the woods and if you were to have no information about watches, but you see this complex watch and, and it runs and it ticks, you'd look at it and say, this is clearly very complex. There must be a creator behind it, right? But what you wouldn't know is why the creator made the watch. You wouldn't know why. This idea of revelation is like a watch with a very detailed manual that says, here's why the watch was created, here's how you can use it, and here's how it can benefit you. And that is hugely significant for people who want to live life well. So the Bible is not, as I said at the beginning, a chore or a symbol of your failure. It's not yelling at us from the shelf. It's an amazing gift. It can, you can dig in it for the rest of your lives and never exhaust the depths of wisdom that are inside of it. The 119th Psalm says this, your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Imagine, um, this happens to me all the time, I wake up in the middle of the night and I decide I need to go get a drink of water in the kitchen, right? 
and it is very, very dark. And, uh, and imagine, in this case, that someone you know that you, that you love has given you a flashlight, you know? Would you wake up and go, ah, it's dark, there's a flashlight, but I've got to go all the way over there and find it. And then I have to click the button. And then I could see. No. You would say, I am so glad I have a flashlight. Because all I have to do is click the button, and I don't stub my toe and destroy my toenail again, which I have done. Right? You, you would say, all I have to do is reach out and hit the button and it will illuminate my path and I can walk safely and quickly to get the... That's, that's what we have in the scriptures, this readily available tool to see and understand the complexity of life. It's not a hassle. It's a joy. It's also a gift because it goes beyond our limited views. As people, humanity as a whole, imagine this. What if we could have access when we get into conflict? You know, you just think about, think about all the troubles within the world. What if you, when there's a conflict and people would go, no, this is the right way to go. No, this is the right way to go. What if you had access to what God thought? To what God would do, to a, to a view that was bigger than your situation, bigger than your culture, bigger than your ideology that was outside of you and outside of everyone else that you could look to and go, ah, that is worth considering because it's not of me and it's not of you, it's of something bigger. What a gift that could be. That's exactly what the Bible claims to be. Try it. Test it. See what it can do. Um, How does that work? I mean, I don't think that, that you're, you know, we're going to see like everybody believing the Bible, but imagine that if all of God's people, I said this the other day, imagine if every single one of the people of the church decided to take on the posture of laying their, down, their lives down for others, how incredibly, you know, changed the world would become just by that happening. Imagine if every person in the world said, um, I'm going to actually lay aside my viewpoint and I'm just going to really seek to see the viewpoint of God in the scriptures, how profoundly that would shape us and the world around us. So that means that you and I, we as a community, need to have the Bible embedded in us and we will begin building culture shaped around God's revelation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. This is Paul instructing a young man. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, why do you need the scripture to correct people, to reprove people, or to train people? Why? Because it's bigger than me. It's bigger than my viewpoint. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your viewpoint. It's outside of our ideologies and cultures It can help us actually teach and train and love and even correct people in a way that aligns with God and not just ourselves. You'll find in the Bible, and this is a very interesting thing when you look at kind of the history of missions and and movements in the world, every single culture that gets the Bible finds two things. One thing, the Bible affirms something about who they are very deeply. 
It tells them something about them is amazing and beautiful and in the image of God. And then the Bible also calls them to repentance for some things and critiques them deeply. Every single culture. And the Bible does that far better than another culture with prejudices can do. The scriptures are an amazing gift that can that can affirm us deeply, that can critique us deeply, but doesn't come from another infallible person. And now, finally, um, and I'm not exhausting this by any means, but the Bible isn't just a historical document or a text. Um, It doesn't just come from God. It is personal. And we especially see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus, um, you know, for the kids in here, you see, what does Jesus get distracted by in the Bible? You see, one thing he gets distracted by, it's studying and discussing the Bible. That's his big distraction when he's 12. Um, That's why he forgets to leave town with his parents when they go to Jerusalem. And they go back and get him, and he said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? You know, and you can see his mom and dad just going, what are you talking about? But they find him, and he's talking about the scriptures. He's, in, he's deeply interested in the scriptures. When he's an adult, he's tempted in the wilderness, and he, conti- he answers all of his temptations. He says, it is written, it is written. And at one point, he says, it is written, man will not live by bread alone when he's tempted to eat. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's Jesus, somebody who knows the Bible, If Jesus knows the Bible well enough to quote it in the middle of a desert all by himself without any scroll in his pocket, how much more should we be able to know the Bible too? But there's far more. He's not just a faithful student that we emulate. He is who the Bible is all about. One time he healed a man on the Sabbath and religious leaders um, who read the Bible all the time were angry at him, which which proves that you can use the Bible as a hammer to hit people with, right? That's what they were doing with Jesus. They said, they didn't like it. They, you healed on the Sabbath against the law. And they, and they hit him with it, right? And Jesus said to them, you know, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't that an incredible thing for a man on earth to say, though? That the scriptures are about me? This guy is either a, he is not a good teacher, if that's not true. That's drastic. But if it's true, we better listen. If the Bible is no more than religious rules and text, we're missing the gift that it's about Jesus. The book of John, John, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, opens up with the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's clear that he's referring to Jesus. And here the word, um, the word, word, is Greek for thought or speech or logic. Why did John choose that word to describe Jesus? And then he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is incredible. What he's saying is that the the one who was with God before the creation, who was the one speaking, the one who, through whom the world was made, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is an incredible statement. 
but it makes so much sense because if God would want to share his words, his speech with us, wouldn't he also want to share himself? He wouldn't just share information, right? Wouldn't he want to share himself? And after Jesus was crucified and there was an empty tomb found, Jesus was walking down a road to a city called Emmaus, or sorry, two disciples were walking down a road on a city called Emmaus, and they encountered a man who wanted to talk, and he said, what's the conversation that you're holding with each other as you're walking along? They stood still looking sad, and one of them said, and his name was Cleopas, uh, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And beside all that, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And the man said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which means Genesis 1, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, which means they were with Jesus, right? Don't you know that that's what the New Testament says is true of every Christian? Behold, I will never leave you or forsake you. That he is with us. And you can see him, Genesis to Revelation. He showed them the whole of the Bible was, as our daughter Abby's storybook Bible said, whispering his name. It's personal. The same Jesus on the night he was betrayed, just days before he walked with these people, was sitting down at dinner with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time that you eat this, remember me. And they're going, what are you talking about? You're sitting right here, right? And then he takes a glass of wine, the cup that they would have passed around and shared at the table. He said, This is a new covenant in my blood. Now, they knew what covenants were. This is where in the Bible, if you'd sinned, there was a a cost. Something, life had to be given to cover over the penalty, the cost of sin. And it took the loss of life. And Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of many. Every time you drink this, remember me. They would drink wine at every party, every wedding. So their lives became infused with these symbols of Jesus that he had showed them before he died and before he was raised from the dead. And what do they mean? The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's personal. And it's deeply meaningful 
and it's absolutely illuminating to our souls. So as you consider approaching this table today, I want you to just just think about the amazing gift that God has given us. The Word became flesh. His Word, His person. We come to physical elements because the Bible isn't abstract. It's speaking of a God who is real and true, who came into our lives and is with us now. We're going to do a few things. Um, We're going to take a time of confession and silence. Um, For some of us, this might be a time to just ponder this. This is a I understand that, that for some of us, this is a stretch, and that's, that's okay. Um, it, this is foundation one of Christianity, by the way. It's where it starts. And that's okay. it's okay to be stretched by that and to say, you know, I'm not really ready for that. That's all right. Now, you could just sit back while, while some of us consider these things. For others, uh, you may need to engage with the God who, who reveals himself in his word and ask the question, Where am I at with you and this gift that you've given? Um, do, I, do I know you? Do I seek you? And, and ask for help. Um, for others of us, there may be something in the, in the Bible that convicts you deeply, and you go, I don't like that it says that. That critiques me. And perhaps you can lift that up to him and either ask for help or, or just, you know, repent. Um, whatever the case, there's two minutes of silence just for you. We'll come out of that two minutes with singing. That's a time for us who can say, my Lord and my God, uh, to Jesus, as, as the doubting disciple Thomas did to, to sing his praise. Um, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. If, if you, even just with a little ounce of faith, you don't, you don't need to say, wow, oh, I understand all this. You just need a little bit of faith, just a mustard seed. Um, you can come and receive him by faith, and I'll serve you. Um, then there's giving in the back. And, uh, and this meal, because this infused the lives of his believers, we're going to watch the Super Bowl and eat dinner. Even that, even that can be done as a Christian. In everything you do, whether you eat or drink, the Apostle Paul said, do everything to the glory of God. So we'll eat together beginning with this table. So I'm going to pray for us briefly, and then we'll have two minutes of silence, and uh, Mike will bring us out of that with music. Father, what a, what a big idea that you didn't just create us, but you speak. That you don't just give us words and facts, you give us yourself. We have the Bible in which we can seek you and seek to know you, but you've come in person, and you promised us you're with us. May this table and these elements lift us to the heavens in our hearts that we would be able to see and commune with you as we anticipate receiving your body broken and your blood shed. Would you do the work inside of our hearts that we need? Lead us as we confess before you. Open our eyes that we could see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. So lead us as we pray.